Thank you for joining the Known Experience. Today, Sean and I are joined by Dr. Steve Garber. Uh, Sean and I have both been exposed to Steve's work through some different uh, avenues, but uh, Stephen Garber was a professor of marketplace theology and leadership at Regent College in Vancouver, and he completed his PhD in philosophy of learning at Penn State, where he focused on the connection between belief and behavior. Uh, his books include Fabric of Faithfulness, which came out of that thesis, Visions of Vocation, and The Seamless Life. And he now lives in the D.C. area with his wife, Meg. He has five children. And Steve, how many grandchildren are we on now? 1,800. <laughs> uh, we, we have 12 grandchildren. Yeah. As of this moment. Um, As of this moment, into the foreseeable future. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But I think your work and your book that that speaks the most to uh, to this podcast and, and our, our focus is is probably the seamless life uh, where you challenge people to move behind a fragmented sense of reality, beginning to work and see all that we do, our work, our play, our relationships, our faith, our, our loved ones as one singular integrated uh, experience. Um, and that was also somewhat the the focus of your thesis for your doctorate um why has that been a concept that has really intrigued you or that you seems to be enamored with uh the, this concept of of bringing life all together into one seamless experience that's a very good question john um, and we could talk for a long time and go for a long walk about that for probably several days in a row but you know I could respond truthfully by saying my father and grandfather were good teachers to me. Um, my grandfather's life, he would bought and sold cattle in Colorado. And uh, though he did probably never, ever, I, he was a college educated, you know, two newspapers every day of his life and kept up with the news a lot, really, and politics a lot and the world a lot. But I doubt he'd ever read, read St. Benedict. But uh, when I began to read St. Benedict many years later after my grandfather had come and gone, I began to think, you know, my grandfather had a life of ora e labora, didn't he? Um, where praying and working were held together in one life. Um, and so as a little boy, I spent most of my summers with my grandparents in Colorado and was enamored of, you know, the cattle world and all of that involved and learned how to, to rope, use a rope and, and all those things. Um, but I remember that night by night we would meet after supper, after gun smoke, you know, we would um, yeah. we would <laughs> get on our knees and my grandfather would lead the family in praying. And um, and he would pray, you know, every time I remember these words, to every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And uh and you know, I took part in it with, you know, obedience and with, you know, <laughs> hope and as a little boy even and uh, but then I would go off with my grandfather to buy cattle too, which was a gift to me in my boyhood years. And and it was intriguing to me to see how much his world of other cattle buyers in Colorado, how much they respected him and honored him and took his took his counsel. Even one time we were down the very southwestern corner of Colorado, a place called Cortez, uh, where the four corners meet each other between Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, and Colorado. And the auctioneer, if you've ever been to a cattle auction, stopped his auctioneering and asked my grandfather, Mr. Gilchrist, what are these cattle selling for this week? And I was 10. I didn't know very much about anything, really. But I remember noticing that, remembering that, 
and are thinking even then, but more years later, the auctioneer knew that my grandfather would know the price. He was really good at what he did. Of all the buyers that were there, my grandfather would know the price. And he would trust my grandfather to tell him the truth about the price. Um, he wouldn't, he was a math genius, my grandfather. He could have quickly changed the numbers for his own benefit. But he just, he, he knew he would be, you know, a truth teller and that he knew his work very, very well. But I knew that for my grandfather too, that there was not like a, 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 a line between his praying and his working. When I began to think about, you know, life and faith and worldview and belief and behavior and all these things it began to be dominant for my in my thinking about life. I began to look back on my boyhood years and thinking, you know, my granddad uh, actually taught me to see this way, to live this way, to think this way. Um, I could tell more stories, but that would be one that for me, I think, you know, was pretty shaping of who I am, how I feel life and how I want to live my own life. Yeah. So when, when this journey began, um, in process, right. Things, discovery happens, experience happens, education happens. So who were you and who are you, you know, along this process, Uh How has it shaped you? Mm-hmm. Again, uh, Sean, we could talk for hours <laughs> about the question, but um, but this is true also. More more could be said. Um, I was raised in my grandmothers and grandfathers and mothers and fathers who loved me and who loved God and wanted me to to live in God's world as best I was figure out how to do that. Um, but I would say that you know, like all boys becoming men in this world, I was trying to figure out who I was going to be and what I was going to believe and how I was going to think and who I would be when I grew up to be, you know, more than just a boy in, the, in this world. Um, I remember hearing the word worldview when I was about 17 for the first time. And uh, did I have a worldview? Everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a way of seeing life and, and the world. And I did too at five, at 10, at 15 and at 17. I just had never heard a world, a word like worldview before. And I remember thinking, that I, that it intrigued me, particularly because what I could understand was it offered a more coherent, comprehensive view of everything about me, all the things that I cared about. Uh, but I remember thinking, because I was 17 and then becoming 18 pretty quickly after that, that if I was going to be serious about the idea of a worldview, I have to think, rethink girls, wouldn't I? So before I got to politics, which brought me to Washington some years later to teach politics for most of my life. We got to the arts, you know, which has taken me all over the country and the world. So I got to economics. I served as a senior advisor to the Mars Corporation's Economics and Mutuality Project. Before I got to these bigger questions in some ways for life in the society, I'd have to rethink what I met, cared most about at 17, which were girls. Because if it wasn't true for the girls of my life, how could it be true for politics? How could it be true for a globalizing world? Now, those are questions I've taken up in my life in the years since then. But at 17, 18, I remember feeling quite keenly, a little bit painfully, <laughs> what would this mean for girls then, Steve Garber? Um, and I began to, for the first time ever, John, to ask deeper questions about how I thought and how I would, what I understood relationships to me in God's world. And, and uh, I would, you know, it's a longer discussion to go into from all that, but I would say that, you know, I, began to realize in some ways those deepest questions for all of us as human beings 
Um, but for me, clearly as a emerging young man in the world, um, it had to be worked out there if it was going to be worked out in the rest of my life into the public square eventually. Or it could be said. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we live in a world where people's values and views and politics are more fragmented and less seamless than ever. Um, but before we go too far down that, um, this idea of seeing seamlessly, seeing life seamlessly, what what does that mean? Like, where does it start for us? I mean, I know you said it started, you know, with the most basic thing in your life at 17 is girls. But as an adult who maybe is like really being confronted with this um in a new way how, how would you like s- communicate or explain or suggest we begin to see life seamlessly if i can draw back to a, an earlier conversation you and i had john you asked if i knew the lady lodge and i said that i did i've been there many times and for those who don't know it's a remarkable retreat center in the hill country of texas an hour and a half west of san antonio and brought into being by the uh the the unfortunately named Butt Family of Texas. <laughs> um, but they've been very good people and have done very good work in Texas for 125 years now, essentially. Um, but when HEB, which is the name of their grocery store company throughout Texas and Northern Mexico, when HEB was getting beginning to sell a lot of bread and a lot of milk to Texans, um, uh, Howard Jr., Howard E. Butt Jr., we gone off to Baylor University and and became friends with Billy Graham. They were about the same ages, actually. And they both had this sense of longing and desire and maybe gift from God to be evangelists. We had to speak it in crusades together. And uh, But here's Howard Butt, who's the son of Howard E. Butt Sr., who was the runner who ran a business. And his long expectation was his oldest son would pick up the business, too, in his life. Um, for the next 10 years, Howard... E. Butt Jr. had what we would describe as his own wrangling of soul over what the work of his life was supposed to be about. And to put it kind of candidly and poetically, maybe a little bit, who was calling him his father in heaven, his father on earth? Because in his own ecclesial world in Texas, clearly a call to ministry was a higher calling than business. The Lady Lodge was born out of that wrestling that he did in his 20s, actually, as a place to come think through, you know, what is calling mean in this life? And can you actually be somebody called to a life in the world? Uh, for years and years, he did a pot, a, not before podcast, but a radio show he called The Higher Calling. Um, and it was really looking at the world, world of work. Um, so I would say when we have theological, sociological, philosophical, you know, ways to divide up life for ourselves. You say, well, you know, yes, yes, but, you know, um, you know but I've been called to, I, my father does business, but you see, business is just business. I'm being called to ministry instead, you know, which is a higher calling. And Howard Butt gave his life to trying to reverse that thinking in the church in America, actually. I live in Washington, D.C., and everybody in Washington who works on Capitol Hill is, by reputation, you know, a Baptist, a Methodist, a Catholic, Episcopalian, a Presbyterian. You know, there are a few nuns, N-O-N-E-S, but most people identify in some way with the ecclesial tradition. Uh, but almost nobody seems, as I would watch the world right now in Washington, is shaped by those deeper, deeper sense of loyalties to the gospel of the kingdom. 
it's much more, I'm a conservative first, I'm a liberal first, a Republican first, Democrat first. Oh, yes, 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 I'm a Catholic too. Yes, yes, I'm an Episcopalian. Yes, yes, I'm a Baptist too. But you want to know what I really think? It's what the party says I think. That's how I think, really. And for my life here in the city, which has been 35 years now, John, I have argued all day long, wherever I can be, that the gospel of the kingdom cuts deeper than the partisan divide. And so in some questions, you might sound more like them and some, some more like them, really. But that is in some ways finally a matter because your deeper allegiance, your deeper commitments are to something that is that, that matters more, that cuts deeper than the partisan divide. So for me, it's wanting my deepest beliefs, my deepest loves, my deepest commitments to actually shape how I think, shape how I live in politics, you know, and the rest of life, too. I would say in my life, that's been an evolution of the last five to 10 years more rapidly of mm-hmm. um, of um, pulling away from the polarizing perspectives. And I, I, I just personally, I've found that it's um, it can be a place of loneliness because it's not as easy to identify your tribe or it's kind of like every every tribe dislikes me in some way because I don't fully line up with them. So. <laughs> Is that an experience that you've found or an experience that people run into when they begin to really pursue a more integrated life like this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that's very much the way it is. Um, and I'm not looking to be a martyr about anything, really. Or I'm not looking to be a, you know, to quote one of your own heroes there in Texas, a lone ranger either. You know, uh, um, But I would say that my deeper friendships, people who think this way with me, who we share this commitment together about god the world about politics about the public life of the world vocation in the world um so uh in one of the essays in the seamless life book i wrote about the nothing but temptation and uh it's arguing that you know when you say oh sex is nothing but you know girls are nothing but you know marriage is nothing but or business is nothing but or politics is nothing but really um what you're giving into is a temptation which ought not to be when we get close to it all, really. Because you see, in some ways, it takes away from this sense, more this more comprehensive, coherent account mm-hmm. of the wholeness of life. So what do we do the idea of a worldview initially? Um, and uh, if we say, well, you know, I work a lot in business with people in the business world these days. You know, and clearly the mindset of most people in the business world is that business is just business, you know. Without thinking through, are there ways of doing business, of thinking about the business of business? And how would you enter into the to the public life, to the life of the world, in language which you and I have talked a little bit about, John? You know, learning to sing songs shaped by the truest truths of the universe in language the whole world can understand. That isn't just true for national musicians. It's true for business people, too, people in the political world, too. But can you take things which matter most to you, the deepest things you believe in, and actually have them shape how you think, shape how you see, shape how you see the world, shape how you live in the world. Um, I could tell you story after story that I'm not a partisan person in the city, and people know that, though that's a hard thing people understand. Like, well, you have to be. When you say you're this, you must be that, of course, Steve. There was a long friend of ours who's a former Republican from Texas, of all places, and a dear friend, and came to the city many years ago, and, and, you know, married for long time and his wife began to become sicker and sicker and was in the George Washington University Hospital for about a month one time 
And and Meg and I went, went to visit her several times. And one night we were there and he said, oh, Steve, you wouldn't believe we came to see Rosemary last night. And he mentioned the woman's name. I said, yes, I know her. And, and she, he said, oh, well, she knows you too. Because she asked, well, who, who comes to see Rosemary? We, I said, oh, Meg and Steve Garber do. And uh, she said, oh, Steve Garber. Such a liberal, isn't he? You know, he's a very well-known Republican conservative politico in the city of Washington. And Bo said, he's not either. And she said, oh, he is too. He's an environmentalist. Now, I've never in my life ever used that term about myself. I, do I care about the creation? Yes, I do. I care about the earth and the heaven and the seas and the skies. I do, really. I care about reptiles and cows and, you know, horses and, you know, butterflies. Yes, I do. I do. I'd love to grow my flowers. I do, really. But I'm not identified in a partisan way with environmentalism in that kind of more partisan way. Um, but to simply be somebody who would be known in the city as caring about the way the world works, how we take care of it, I could be pigeonholed as, oh, such a liberal, isn't he, really? As if somehow, you know, you if you cared about things like that, you clearly weren't part of our tribe, our, our camp. Because, of course, why? We don't care about things like that from our side. That's mm -hmm. those guys over there. Mm -hmm. And I, don't, I have little time for that, though I've lived in that world for most of my life now. So. Yeah. You know, it's often, it's often said, uh, or people say, you know, I'm not what I do, right? So... Mm -hmm. But, um, but we are what we choose, right? So, yeah, um, that's true. Us, that's profound, right? Yeah. And and so, therefore, what we do is a part of who we are, for better or for worse, right? So it's just like mm -hmm. the guy that says, you know, your business is your business, and another person told me, you know, let your investments be your investments, and it never made sense to me. Right. It was a, it's always been a very frustrating thing for me to grapple with. And even more so now with children, right? What I, what I end up doing, unless you are, are in a very, you know, uh, constrained life for, you know, by yeah. external um, circumstances that you can't control much of anything. Um, but I always want my kids to know, to see consistency, right? So if I say, um, this is important to me then what I do is actually a reflection of who I am. Um, and so do you find that, uh, that challenging for most people to really understand, right? I, I don't know if it's a, it's a, if it's a lack of understanding and, and, you know, our choices are who we are, therefore what we do is a part of who we are or, um, or is it more of that, entanglement can be too much right life is already challenging enough so i don't need to to have to somehow have this existential crisis about what i do too right like let my work be my work <laughs> life is hard enough do you, do you understand what i'm saying that was kind of a long-winded question yeah. but um it's it's always you know for me it was girls and i don't want to live like most 40 year old men you know i'm now 44 um who seem very disconnected with what they do um, or it's for us, the simple outcome of, of money, uh, that, that, that didn't make sense when I was 17 and chasing and understanding girls or now 44, I still don't understand a life yeah. like that. So what, what do you, do you find it to be a challenge and, and what's the reason of the disconnect? Yeah, it is a wonderful question though. And it's the kind of question we should talk about for a long time. 
Um, now, on the one hand, I am pretty deeply committed to this insight of the Oxford moral philosopher, Iris Murdoch, who wrote some years ago, at crucial moments of choice, most of the business of choosing is already over. Hmm. Ooh, I like that. I do too. Um, hmm. Because, of course, we choose out of who we are, out of the choices we've made. Is this fatalism? I don't think it's fatalism at all. Is it karma? I don't think it's karma at all, actually. But I think that, you know, in Václav Havel's, you know, best imagery or best teaching, the secret of man is the secret of his responsibility. So here's the Czech political philosopher, poet, playwright, you know, uh, become president, you know, understanding his own culture and century in Central Europe and realizing that apart from the Czech people recovering the idea of responsibility for themselves, for the future, there was no future for them. It always been totalitarianism up to that point, really. The Nazis, the communists deciding what the day was going to be like and whether the sun was going to shine or not and what books you were going to read and where you could work and where you could go to school. And so when communism imploded finally and Havel became the leader for 10 years, he kept saying all over the world, the secret of man is the secret of his responsibility. Uh, so I've taken that to heart deep, quite deeply, actually. And uh, I think at the heart of who we are as human beings is our ability to respond, our responsibility. So to pair that up with Iris Murdoch's, at crucial moments of choice, most of the business of choosing is already over. In my mind, is really it, it helps us think about this question um, I would say they add a little bit more to, the, to this because it's a great, good, great question that I think we are as sons of Adam, daughters of Eve disposed to dualism. Mm. And it's a heartache. It's a tragedy, actually, you know, because it has far reaching consequences for everything about us as human beings. Um, several years ago, I was speaking in Birmingham at the tragically iconic 16th Baptist church where the little girls were murdered one Sunday morning in the early 1960s. And I was asked to speak on the question for the whole city, for a, a prayer breakfast for the city, what would the recovery of the idea of vocation mean for the renewal of our city? And I took it quite seriously, and uh, a lot more could be said about it. But um, uh, but I told the story that morning because when I walked in, I, I saw this glass case uh, by the front door. You know, I knew this. I knew the story immediately. It was this pic, It was a, a glass case, and you know, covering a a slave ship from the, the Middle Passage, bringing Africans to the, the the New World to be enslaved in Georgia and South Carolina and and on and and uh, a terrible, terrible part of our history, really. But it was there at the opening, at the beginning of the, walking into the room. Um, Ironically, but providentially too, I suppose, we sang Amazing Grace when we finished this prayer breakfast for the city of Birmingham. I sang, but also with kind of an ache in my heart, thinking, but John Newton, John Newton, this is your story, really. It'd be a happier story if we could say, well, John Newton found a Bible on board ship, repented, you know, wrote Amazing Grace, talked to William Wilberforce, and praise be to God, what a good story that is, really. The harder truer story is that he actually kept slaving, trading slaves for years afterwards, after his repentant faith. Um, and he would literally have, have studies of the Bible on the top deck with officers, while the slaves are manacled below in the holds, you know, for weeks and weeks on end, really. Seeing no relationship between his new faith mm -hmm. and his life, his work, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's even harder, because it's the first record we have is about 34 years later, he write, wrote a letter, which you know, you can find where he says out loud for the first time that we have record of at least 
I know that I was once part of a terrible, terrible thing in life. I did this with my life. Uh, and uh, so every indication that he himself realizes that it was amazing grace who found a wretch like me is true, you know. But in terms of putting together, holding together a more coherent sense of, I think this way, I believe this to be true, I live and work this way, it wasn't true for much of his life, actually. Yeah. And uh, I believe that we shouldn't be disdainful of him right. because we're all disposed to dualism. But uh, I do think in some ways, you know, quite profoundly at crucial moments of choice. Most of the business of choosing is already over. Um, yeah. That, that wow, that quote, uh, that resonates so much. Uh, something Sean and I've talked about is in this known experience that we're, that we often reflect on that uh, for men, we only tend to get real or vulnerable often in moments of crisis. And you can't build a friendship in a moment of crisis. Like you can be there for each other, but there's a practice you need to uh, engage yourself in. So when that moment of crisis comes, you've built this foundation of depth. Um, we we like to get pragmatic on here and 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 offer people some ways to enter in more deeper into these uh, ideas. Uh, what would you suggest as some some steps in? becoming more aware where your life is not integrated or, um, mm -hmm. or even yeah. the, uh, this idea of going slow that you talk about, uh, if you touch on that mm -hmm. also. Yeah. These are all such good questions, John. Um, I don't think it's possible to th think, I mean, I wouldn't argue anybody very far at all over a choice of words, but I have over time come to believe that the word integral is a better word than the word integrate. Integral assumes coherence. Integral assumes a seamlessness. Um, I'm not trying to put together two things that don't really belong to each other. My faith in my business, my faith in my politics, my mm -hmm. faith in my sexuality, you know. But I'm actually beginning to see into the very nature and character of the cosmos, mm -hmm. the way the world actually is to see its integral character. That in fact, it holds together in this way. To have eyes to see in the words of Jesus, to have ears to hear. What? Eyes to see, ears to hear what? Well, the way things really are made in God's world. Um, so it's not in a sense trying to say, well, how do I, you know, integrate, you know, my faith with my music, with my art, with my political convictions, or it's a good work of the maturing of faith, of the sanctifying of faith over time, to beginning to think more and more consistently, more and more coherently uh, about these things. Um, but I would say that that really is the task we have. Um, and uh, I don't think it's possible to do that without having a theological imagination that's deep enough to begin to make sense of, of the complexity of the world. Um, I'm working on a book right now, and one of the chapters I draw upon, since you're in Dallas, you're not quite in Austin, but just go down the highway a little bit to, you know, that capital city that you have there. Um, and one of the most interesting citizens of Austin is maybe one of the best filmmakers in the world these days, named Terrence Malick. And he's a remarkably gifted filmmaker. Uh, but in one of the chapters of the book, I've written especially about two films, The Tree of Life and A Hidden Life. And uh, um, 
and while we could talk for a long time about both of them, on the one hand, the tree of life, life is a story of the great, great, great story of all of reality. You know, it's a, he never names the chapters, never says this is what it's about. If you're paying attention, if you have eyes to see, to use good language here, you think, sheesh, Terrence Malick, what are you doing here with this story? But it's a story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. The story of the way the world was supposed to be, the way the world is, the way the world could be, might be, should be, the way the world someday will be, actually. And that's the story he tells in The Tree of Life. It won the Khan Gold Medal, the Gold Medal Prize, the year it came out 11 years ago now, the best film in the whole world that year. But this is the story of human life under the sun, of this story here, actually. If you want to understand your place in the story, you have to pay attention to the story that really is true about your life and mine. The Hidden Life is, of course, not the same story. It's a different film about a German, an Austrian farmer in 1942 and 43, up in the most yeah. pristine, beautiful valley in the world, looks like at least, you know, and it's innocent life, an earnest life, a hardworking life with a little farm and a wife and children. And the Nazis begin to slowly come into, you know, to Europe and across Europe and to finally into the mountains of Austria. Innocently, he says, yes, I will sign up for the National Guard because everyone in the village has to. All the men have to sign up. But then they say, well, now that you've signed up this way, Franz Jagenstadter, you have to hire Hitler. He says, but I can't do that. Well, why can't you do that? Because I don't believe that. It doesn't matter what you believe. You just do it. They're just words to say. It doesn't matter what you believe, Franz. Just say the words. So I can't say words I don't believe in. Um, it's a tender, heart-aching story, really. Uh, but clearly of, you know, bringing into being with, you know, full and cinematic embodiment, Iris Murdoch's at crucial moments of choice, most of the business of choosing is already over. So for the rest of the story, really, Franz lives into his decision to not have Hitler. Uh, I won't ruin the story for anybody here on the podcast, but clearly you see, you know, of somebody who is willing to have his whole life play out with drama and tenderness and poignancy and, you know, and the, the greatest terrors of the human heart, um, because I believe this to be true about life in the world. Um, and so, you know, unless you have a theological imagination that can make sense of the beginning and the end of the story, like the tree of life does so beautifully, you can't really make sense of who you are in the story then either. Um, so John, I would say, you know, where do we begin? You know, even though we can say a lot of things, I would say, make sure you get the story right. If you don't get the story right, you won't know where you came from, and you don't want to know where you're going. And therefore, you won't know, in fact, what to do with these days of your life. Hmm. Would you say getting the story right? I mean, because many of us grew up in uh, a tradition or a family where we were told what the story is, and it had very clear bullet points. And this yeah. is exactly what you are to believe uh, i've found as a as in adulthood uh, and as i've had more i've allowed myself to be more curious and to listen to people outside of my tribe mm -hmm. that that has changed quite a bit so when you say theological uh you say create a creative theology how did you I say said, that i said theological theological imagination imagination would you say that requires some curiosity that's willing to look outside of what you've always said to be? 
Again, that's a pregnant question. And we could say, well, well, John, what do you mean by that? Let's go, you know, let me poke back and ask you a few questions then too. Um, I dropped out of college, university when I was a 20 year old, spent two years away living in the, in the counterculture days in American history. So a long ways from today, but I lived in communes for a couple of years, one in the Bay Area of California, one in Europe. And uh, the one in Europe, after I hitchhiked across America and, you know, um, uh, and I, I did a lot of hitchhiking in the, those couple of years, actually. And I always took the hitchhiking rides to be a time to ask more questions. Because so, there was a curiosity that I had about, so how do you make sense of the world? I'm trying to figure out how to make sense of the world for myself. How do you? What about this? And I think about that. And, you know, I spent all these hours and rides all across the country and in Europe, finally, asking me, well, well, how do you make sense of things then? You know, I ended up finally at a, a little little place, uh, uh, a wonderful place that there were no internet, there were no brochures. It's simply the word on the street was, if you had an honest question, you could get, you, you could ask, get, you had an honest question, you get an honest answer in this little community called La Brie. And uh, so I ended up there finally. And uh, I found it to be a place of intellectual hospitality uh, where you know people were taken seriously, but but truth was taken seriously too. And for me, ever since then, I suppose, and all the years since then, I have tried to hold together, hold those together, that, you know, a hospitality of mind and of heart, um, and have my own life, my own teaching, my own pedagogy, my own writing, to be in some ways invitational. People who read me, and I don't read myself the same way, but people say, you ask a lot of questions in your writing, Steve. I say, I do? I say, well, maybe I do, but I'm not in some ways trying to play a game with anybody. I probably, I'm, I'm honestly interested. Too, and so for me, you know, about three years ago, when the publisher of Etta Schaefer's *The God Who Was There* decided to put out a 50th anniversary edition of his book, I got asked to write the foreword for it, which was kind of a surprise to me because I was just a you know not very long ago a college dropout who found his way to Labrie too. Um, but I did my best to, in some ways, tell something of the intellectual, moral religious, spiritual, human, relational hospitality that most of all marked what Libri was about, a place to come in with an honest question and get an honest answer. Mm. So I could say more about that, John, because you've asked a good, a complex question, but you know, I am a mere Christian in my deepest commitments about things. I'm not particularly interested in what the room off this hallway. I mean, I'm an Anglican by worship week by week, but you know, I live most of my life quite consciously in that central hallway of C.S. Lewis's, the central hallway, the mere that of mere Christianity. So I'm not particularly interested in the debates between the traditions, though I sometimes enter into the particular traditions and their questions. Uh, but I really live most of my life in that central hallway of the most important things. Hmm. So as you've grown um, in your professional life, by nature, right, when you are a professor and a doctor and author and on boards, you become a man that has the knowledge for others to find answers, right? Um, has, has this progression left you room to to have the those questions for yourself still 
or mm-hmm. or or has or has that that the your your role as you know guru right <laughs> for for others to find answers has that has that um somewhat not given room to the those that that hallway right or do you find specific time and place for your for yourself to yeah. to encourage that again i mean we'd have to probably just sit face to face and talk don for a while and say well let, tell me what about behind the question what's up what's in the question for you um, um i mean i would say that i mean that this is an image that i've been helpful to me in my life um, none of us live all of life with our hands completely open about everything right None of us live all of life with our hands completely closed about everything. We just, we live in some ways, all of us, distinctively, uniquely, wonderfully differently, um, with some open palm, open hand, and then a closed hand, really. Mm-hmm. Um, some things are, in some ways, are not negotiable in that sense for all of us. And then some things we say, well, let's talk about that, okay? Um, um, so for me, I think maybe maturity, maybe a, a you know growing maturity of mind and heart, is to realize with greater wisdom and insight, what are the things you're going to hold like this that you never would let go of. What are the things you're going to say? Well, okay, let's talk about this. We can talk about that, can't we? Of course we can. Um, now on this one too, I mean, depending on who you are and where you are, I mean. Uh, I know that at least on some level you re- read things I've written, but there's a uh, there's an epilogue or a, I guess an epilogue to the Visions of Vocation book. I tell a story about a man on an airplane traveling across America and having hours of discussion with him about the deepest things of his life and and of my life too. You know, he was by by creed, you know, and proud to be a, a, an evolutionary determinist. Uh, that was how he described himself. Fancy pants lawyer in Washington, D.C., went off to Las Vegas for a weekend. No. And we talked about everything in those few hours together. Um, and, uh, you know, I wrote in the epilogue, you know, that when I asked him a particular question at a particular time after some hours of back and forth, and uh, he gave a very surprisingly very candid answer to my question, I wrote that I didn't laugh at him, of course. I didn't smirk at him. Because um, I knew he was just like me. I knew he had the same hopes I have, the same longings I have, the same you know, desires I have, um, wanted the same things I want, probably. Because um, why? Because he's a human being like I am. You know, we're sons of Adam together, really. So, born of the same hopes and fears that I have, actually. So, I would say that my desire is wherever I go to treat people around me as people that I'm like, that I'm like them, you know, with the same longings that I have, because longings are you know, quite an important window into who we are as human beings. So after several hours of discussion, when he said, when he answered a hard question, I'd asked him with a surprisingly candid answer. I, I thought, well, okay, I hear what you're saying. I'm not going to laugh at that because I understand that because that's, that's just how I am actually. Steve, as I listen to you talk, this is and this is not a loaded uh, question. <laughs> I, I know that, uh, that that sometimes we do that, but uh, as I listen to you talk right now, and you talk about how you look at uh, you look at at humanity as as I am one, 
uh, with humanity. I'm this man and I are are probably more similar than we are different, which is very contrary to much of the conversation today. Well, that's very mm -hmm. polarized and very us and them. Sean and I were talking about yeah. this just before the podcast. And um, and I, I've just grown to have less and less tolerance for us and them conversations. But what I hear you saying is that the seamless life idea may be part of, um, of being that way yourself is seeing the world that way. Like not just internally being seamless, but seeing my connection to the world as being more seamless that it's not just us and them and categorize these people this way and this silo and that silo and that maybe as i begin to be willing to see the world more seamless that i myself will become that way is that do you think that's accurate mm -hmm. or is yeah. that just yeah it's a very good question john i you guys are good people um so i told about my grandfather in part of a response to your one of your earliest questions I mentioned my father too in that, but I didn't say anything about him. But my father was a scientist, a plant pathologist for the University of California, which meant that he studied plants his whole life. Uh, and uh, not just always picking them out of the ground and looking at the plant, but he used saw through microscopes most of his life too. Um, I think that my father gave me, you know, if my grandfather gave me a certain set of gifts, a certain set of dispositions, my father did too in a different way. Um, because he would pray walking into the laboratory to have insight into the questions that were his that day. Um, he would have wisdom about what questions he was asking, what questions were not worth asking that day and this week and this year. Um, and uh, But it wasn't only the laboratory and the greenhouses of his life, but we spent weeks of my boyhood years in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. And then, you know, on to Colorado too, because I had been born there. Um, often in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado too. I remember walking, you know, many times in the Rocky Mountains with my dad, and he had at one point in his academic studies memorized all the flowers of Colorado. So, like, we would be walking these high bales, and he would always on every flower rally, hmm. you know? and that just impressed me as a boy, and then a bigger boy and younger man thinking, Dad, I mean, like, you know this, don't you, really? This is the known experience we're talking about today, of course, in the context of what you've named your podcast. Um, but you know, one of the deepest of all the questions of my life is, you know, how do you hold what you know together with what you love? When you know, then you love. And if you don't love, then you don't really know. So in contrast, stark contrast to the contemporary in language of, you know, what we all live in. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I know that, but, you know, I mean, in the Hebrew world and worldview, actually, you're, you're more tethered to a, a more intrinsic relationship between what you know and what you love. And you, if you're going to know, then you actually have to love. And if you don't know, if you don't love, then you don't know. So for me, I think my father mentored me and not just that he academically had mastered, you know, the flora of Colorado, but when we would walk the trails together, I always had a sense that he 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 was really interested in, you know, he had thought about, he cared about these flowers too. Um, you know, if you could see where I am right now in my study here in, you know, Virginia, uh, you know, spring is coming to Virginia right now. I have, we lived in this house for over 30 years. I have planted and replanted and replanted again and 
re-dug again and planted again, we have hundreds of daffodils that are popping up right now all over the all over the our yard. Just hundreds and hundreds of front and back and on the sides and you know, the forsythia is out in its glory right now. I'm looking at at that. You know, I can see on the probably 20 dogwood trees that are in our yard in all, all different varieties. I can begin to see this week the little popping of the little buds that will become a flower. You know, in a couple in a month or two, really. You know, I have loved this. I love this. My wife would tell you. My children would tell you. My friends would say, you know, Dad, Steve, you know, you know Granddad, Grandpa, as I am to like grandkids. He loves his flowers, doesn't he? You know, and I do. You know, uh, and I was never the person like my father who did a master's and a PhD in you know botany and patho that pathology. I didn't do that with my life, but in some ways I came to think that it wasn't just that you would know about, but to know, to really know, meant that you, means that you had to love. You may be familiar with this quote. We are called to see the world as it is in all its brokenness and pain and choose to still love it. <laughs> I've heard that before. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Um, I think what I've struggled with is love, right? So choose to still love it Yeah, is um, where there's an infinite spectrum of responses, right? What is love, right? in that respect how do we love as john said in this world of of when we're trying to live seamlessly to understand it we have to understand what love is right or how we define it how do, so how do you define <laughs> loving the brokenness and pain ah boy, boy. Yeah. well love can't be a cheap word right now it can't be a cheap word. It just cannot be a cheap word. Um, so when I've had discussions about this with people over the years in many different places, and sometimes there's a look of like, but what are you saying, Steve? I would say, well, let me ask you about you and your, your wife, you and your husband. Um, you know, can your wife know you and still love you? Then all of a sudden it gets quite personal and like, oh, <laughs> I see what you're saying, because you know, you know, you mentioned to me Andrew Peterson's weaklings group some years ago, John in, in Nashville. You know, if we actually know ourselves, we have some sense of our frailty. If we're honest about that at any level at all, actually, you know, we know that we are frail people. We're weak people. We stumble along as people, um, and you know, most poignantly and most terribly, and maybe most wonderfully, that can be and should be and sometimes is most beautifully seen in a marriage when actually you are known and loved at the very same time. So the great grief of this life is to be known and not be loved. Mm. Isn't it? I mean, yeah. that really is the greatest of the griefs of this life. Yes. I know who you are and know. No, I don't think so. And I know, I know too much. You know, I know too much about who you are. I can't, I just won't. No, I just, I cannot do that actually. Um, and so to say, what does it mean to love, John? Um, I think, I mean, why I have argued in the Visions of Vocation book that, you know, at the very heart of what vocation means in its deepest, truest sense, it is to know and to love the world at the same time. It's what God does, you know, um, and we're called to be like God in the world. So uh, 
know, to um, that somehow, that somehow, somehow, by amazing grace, you know, God knows me and still chooses to love me. Uh, that's you know, that is amazing grace actually, that I could be known by the God of heaven and earth and still be loved. That's quite surprising actually. Uh, when my wife does that in her own earnest and hopeful and persistent ways, that's the greatest gift of my people ask me often, like I must ask you too, how are you doing, Steve? Without a blink, I almost always will say, My wife still loves me. <laughs> but they know what a big deal that is, actually. It's a big deal, you know, for my wife to know me and still love me. Um for me to to answer your question, I would say, Well, what's it mean to to love the world and its brokenness, its hurt and its longings and its complexity, you know. Well, it is microscopically true in my relationship to my wife. Most personally, most tenderly, it is true there. But then, of course, if you begin to muse over that and to begin to think that through, you begin to realize that, you know, it has to be true, kind of the wider world, too. Um, and uh, um, and it isn't just true of, of personal relationships, so it is right. manifest there, you know, clearly. But it begins to be true of like a question like, well, you know, can I love West Palm Beach, Florida? You know, now that I know it. You know, can I love Dallas, Texas? Now that I still know Dallas, now that I begin to know Dallas, Texas. You know, can I love the Republic of Texas? Now that I begin to know the Republic of Texas. You know, and is it possible to actually know the world, the political world, you know, the economic sphere of life? You know, can I begin to actually know the complexity and the range of, you know, this world? And still care about it. Or will I choose? I mean, again, one of the chapters in the Visions book, I'm sorry to be pedantic about it, but it is how I think about things. There's a chapter called The Great Temptations. And the great temptations that I've written about them are stoicism and cynicism. And what I've argued is they're two sides of the same coin, basically, even though they see themselves differently. But they both know, but say, I won't care. Hmm. Stoicism says, well, well, I used to be 20. I'm not 20 anymore. Come on. Right, you know, right. I've lived in the world for a while. I've done that. I've been here. I've seen this. I've, I've... No, I'm not going to be fooled again. You know, I'm not going to get hurt again. So I turn the barometer of my heart down. Why? Because I don't want to be hurt again. Why? Because if I know if I know like that and take it in like that, I'll get hurt. I won't get hurt again. Thank you. Cynicism is not the same response, but it's also another way of repressing or suppressing the language of Romans chapter one, what we know to be true. And cynicism says, well, you know, I've lived in Washington, D.C. For, for a few years now, and if I don't screw you, you're going to screw me. So I'll get mine done first. I'll stab you in the back first. Okay? Yeah. And we should remember, of course, that House of Cards was, first of all, a BBC production. You know, it wasn't Washington, D.C. And why is that? Because the screwing, the cynicism to get you get get you first, it goes way, way back for us. And the mm -hmm. cynics actually mm -hmm. named themselves the cynics thousands of years, of years before Jesus came into the world. It's a long, long temptation, really. No. Um, it goes way, way back in human history. Why? Because it's awfully hard, maybe the hardest thing in the whole world to really know is to still care. Mm. I love that. That's, <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, John. Yeah, as, as you were talking about that, and I, this is just personal processing and reflection uh, for whatever it's worth. But, you know, I was, I was thinking about why, you know, that's so true. You know, we are um, 
Sometimes we're afraid to be known because we don't think we'll be loved. We're afraid to know others deeper because we're afraid the more we know them, the less we'll love them. Um, and I wonder if that is because we so often frame knowing by negatives. So we, we elevate the negatives or the differences or the things we disagree with um, rather than looking for the good or looking for what we agree in or looking for the beauty. And I think we do that with others and we probably do it with ourselves also. And so it causes us to, you know, it's safer to maintain a distance or a uh, surface level knowing because we're let, you know, we won't experience true love, but we also won't experience rejection. So we're just kind of in this middle ground on that. That's, I, mm -hmm. I, that's, that's what I've been pondering. Um, there's really just to play with you a little bit, John, there's a no man's land between those two that you just art articulated, isn't there? Mm -hmm. No, well, but I don't want to get too far in this business of knowing you or being known by you. Why? Because well, that would be something bad could happen, actually. I might know more about you than I want to know, or you might know about me than I want you to know. So I'm going to keep this a little bit, put some boundaries around this, because you see, if either side goes either this way or that way, that's not good for me, really. So I won't go there, thank you. Um, it becomes a quote, no man's land. Then. So I'm always the pragmatic one. I always want to know, like, what can I do? You said that twice now, John, on this podcast. You've identified yourself as pragmatic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always want to know what steps can I take? You know, that's why, like, if I've gone to a therapist who just wants yeah. to let me talk the whole time, I'm always like, give me homework. Mm -hmm. Tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah. I wanted to get your thought on one practice. Um I think we both have in common or we both enjoy. And, um, you know, um, a while back I was reading this book, Dear Teo by Irving Stone. And um, anybody that's not familiar with it, um, it's the compiled and edited letters from Vincent van Gogh to his brother, Teo. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are beautiful and heart-wrenching and heartbreaking. And uh, it is, it's reality. This is real, actual letters that he wrote back and forth with his brother. And something I was really struck by has is, is he would take these walks often, like hours and hours. And something that we don't, a lot of us don't feel like we have the luxury of today, but it would, he'd be out in the country for hours and hours and all that he would glean from that time he would share with his brother. As I've gotten older, I've come to value and appreciate those experiences so much more, whether it be taking a trip with Sean and going for a long hike, or just even just taking the time to take a walk. Um, do you feel like that's a practice that uh, that helps us regulate in all of this uh, as far as becoming more aware of our thoughts or giving ourselves space uh, to get even the power of boredom bringing us to let some things come to the surface that um, that we don't think of when we're just distracted by going and going and going? Mm -hmm. This isn't to be too self-reflective, John, but maybe five times, maybe seven times, I've said to you in this last hour plus, we should take a walk together. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Why should we take a walk? What do you think happens when we walk? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unless you're just really obnoxious, John, I don't assume that you are. You're probably not going to be on your cell phone the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, you're probably going to put it in your pocket, at least, you know. But most of the time, probably you're, you're going to be paying attention to the conversation. You're, you're on this conversation with somebody that you want to talk with. Uh, and uh, and because you have used the language, both of you, about slowing down. you know. And I think in some ways we slow down 
with a walk like that too, don't we? We're not walking in a mall or we're not walking to an appointment. We're not walking to get someplace, you know, we're walking because we want to talk to, to each other. And so I think that the, the grace of that kind of a walk is its purpose is to, to dig more deeply, to be more human together. Um, you know, we've not mentioned this person at all, and I maybe I'll give you this as a, a last shot too, because you've asked questions about this. I just couldn't figure out how to say it to you right now, but this is the known experience, right? Um, so one of the, if I was apprenticed by so-and-so and so-and-so when I went here and when I went there, and you can kind of maybe place me intellectually or theologically or philosophically, those were his teachers, weren't they? You know? It might surprise you to know that one of my most chosen teachers was Simone Weil, uh, the, the French philosopher, uh, a woman in the first half of the 20th century. Um, I've written about her quite a bit in different places, so I won't say much more here, but... Um, but the last night of her life, uh, she uh, wrote in her journal words, and the very last words she wrote were these words, the most important task of teaching is to teach what it means to know. Now, if you were to walk across, you know, Dallas, Texas, and all the schools of all different sizes and shapes, and, you know, from the preschools to the kindergartens to the elementary to the private schools, the public schools, the universities, the colleges, I mean, Thousands of people are, you know, in those schools, and thousands of people are teaching in those schools. I wonder how close anybody would get to Simone Weil's argument. The most important task of teaching is to teach what it means to know. I think we got to end right there. Yeah. Okay. I think that's. Uh, <laughs> I think we will leave people with much to consider if we yeah. do that. Yeah. Uh, Steve, before we go, would you just tell us about your new book that you're working on and uh, how we might uh, enjoy it soon? <laughs> that would be the great hope to enjoy it soon, sooner than later. Sure. I'll give you the three-minute version of it or so, okay? Maybe. Um, but, but 10 years ago or so, I was asked by a magazine in Toronto, Canada, if I would write it, they said, you've been watching Washington politics for a long time. They didn't say you've been watching Washington girls for a long time, interestingly, because I had moved beyond that 17-year-old question to a life in the political world of Washington for most of my life. Been watching Washington politics. Is there, is there a vocation in the political world was the question. Which I'd given years to thinking about, actually. And I, it was a good, interesting, good question to be asked. And I wrote an essay after a summer was thinking about it, I called Making Peace with Proximate Justice. And what I argued was, if you were going to actually come here to this city of great glories and shames and stay here for a while, knowing the city still choosing to care about the city, a hard, hard thing to do, actually, you'd have to be willing to make peace with proximate justice, by which I meant some justice, not everything, healthcare, medic, you know, education reform, U.S.-Israel relations, you know, whatever it's going to be, really. You know, you'd have to be willing to work hard for something that was honest and right and true, because you're never going to get everything. So would you be willing to make peace with proximate justice, with, with something that's right to be done? I've been thinking about that ever since then, and probably three or four years ago, I was in my last year at Regent College and been asked by a group of wonderful people in Central Europe to come speak to them. Uh, 30 years after the Velvet Revolution, which is what Pavel and his colleagues had brought into being in the then called Czechoslovakia. And uh, they said, 30 years later, Stephen, would you come talk to us about what the challenge of vocation for the, for the common good is 30 years after the Velvet Revolution? 
We'd hoped that all good things would happen when communism was no longer dominant. Well, 30 years later, it hasn't. You know, these are still the problems we have, really. So I spent several days, you know, with them, laboring in my the love of my heart, trying to think with them about what the recovery of vocation would mean for them 30 years later. How would you still work at things that were important, even if all that you hoped would happen has not happened? Uh, I came back when I was deciding to leave Canada, come back to the States. I thought, you know, if I can find a way to write a book about the proximate, I want to. Um, so I spent the last two years pretty steadily working away at this book. I'm about done, I think, with it. And, you know, it essentially is about, you know, that maybe it's asking a question because a lot of my writing has been born of questions, really. Um, would you be willing to work at something that mattered, even if you didn't get everything that you wanted? Everything maybe that God wanted, you know, everything that the world needed, would it still be worth working for it? Would you be willing to make peace with proximate justice in the public square? Would you be willing to have a marriage, just to kind of be very tender and personal with all of us here for a moment, that had some honest happiness to it, some true happiness in it? Even if everything that you imagined and thought and read about, you know, and saw in the movies, didn't wasn't your experience, but you had actually a touchable, true, mm. honest happiness. Would that be worth it? Or will you require of this everything in the now but not yet of history? You know, we don't have access to everything anytime. So it's really a book about how do you keep your heart alive when everything you think ought to be is not? And can you live a life trying to work out, you know, approximate happiness in marriage, approximate mm, yeah. justice in the public square, um, and on and on and on and on. So That sounds like a prophetic book for our time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where people are all or nothing, uh, this and that, in or out, yeah. us and them. Uh, I look forward to hearing that. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Well, sir, we, we, we really appreciate um, getting to know you uh, a little bit more and, uh, that was my hope, right? Your work is your work, but who is who is Steve is very important to me. <laughs> that is my work with coffee, right? Uh, uh -huh. So that others can be, so I can learn their story five minutes at a time. So giving us your time, um, we, we deep, deeply value that and uh, we look forward to next time. <laughs> it's good to be with you guys because I would say that's really true, John and Sean. You ask very, very good questions. Well, thank you. And we will take you up on taking a walk, uh, <laughs> okay. hopefully sooner rather than later. So <laughs> okay. Uh, for okay. everybody that's listening, uh, we're going to come back to you in about 15 seconds with after the interview. Thank you, Steve, so much for being with us. And uh, we hope to see you again soon. Me too. Thank you, guys. Yep. Welcome back for after the interview. Um, we've just been talking to Stephen Garber, who's somebody that I was introduced to through an organization called Art House to to his writings. Sean, how did you meet Steve? Um, through my good friend Alan McDonald in DC. Yeah. So he's oh right right yeah. Stephen yep. is a legend. Is I encourage you to go out check out his writings. 
I mean, the quote of his that really piqued my curiosity was uh, he says that uh, culture is upstream from politics, that all politics are a result or reaction uh, to culture. We won't dive into that here, but that's a fascinating <laughs> idea. Um, but, um, you know, I would say, first of all, I would say, wow, this guy talking to this guy feels like talking to Yoda a little bit. Would Would you agree with that? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. There was no straight to the point, uh, answer. He, he, you could tell he was a professor, right? A, a professor, uh, that wanted to spur thought, which I loved those types of professors that made you think, but he didn't, he wanted to paint a picture and then you had to find the answer in that picture. Yes. <laughs> I would say he is a classic philosopher, right? Yeah. Like I'm looking for three, three easy steps to, to live right. a more seamless life. And he's going to tell me a story about something. And I think you asked something like that twice. And I was like, John, you should probably stop. <laughs> and he kind of, the second time he kind of laughed. Oh, <laughs> you are, you've mentioned that you're a pragmatist twice. Yeah, yeah, he did. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So, uh, yeah i mean i kind of i mean not to over overdo it but i kind of feel like it was kind of like what jesus was like right people like i forget the numbers but something like he was asked like hundreds of questions he responded to those questions with a couple hundred other questions and he actually answered the question like less than 10 times right in all the gospels so um i guess that's a good category to be in if that's if that's how you're communicating with people yeah, well, but he he has been working with the Mars Corporation, which if you don't know what Mars owns, they own everything in the sweet mm -hmm. sector, right? And he's been working with them for about 10 years as a consultant to do major cultural changes in the company. But that sh struck me as somewhat hilarious just in the way that he he works, right? Because you would think a corporation like that, they want three steps to x yes. y and z right but he's not that type of guy so you know he told me in a in a private interview that he met with you know ceo it's not like he's meeting levels down he's he's meeting with the top so those meetings are fascinating to me right and what corporations like mars see in him and really want to implement right and i, I asked him that over the phone and i'm not sure what he said but um I didn't take many notes because I was constantly thinking about, okay, what is his answer? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. He, he is, his essays are phenomenal though. You know, if you don't, if you don't want to read books, he writes essays quite a bit on social media and um, he, he's a really skilled writer. Right. Um, I think one thing I really took away from it when, when he was asked, um, you know, when did you start thinking about this seamless life idea? Yeah. He told a story, shockingly, uh, about his grandfather and that he saw his grandfather live out a seamless life. So not only did he know it was possible, to him it was normal. Yeah. And uh, it reminded me, you and I have both been reading Bono's uh, autobiography and uh, or memoir, whichever you call it, but he talks yeah. about how he grew up in a, a home that was a paradox. Yeah. Mom was Protestant. His dad was Catholic. His dad was Catholic, blue collar, but loved opera. 
um and and then his mom died when he was young like 12 or 14 and his whole life he was in this community of men and but this memory of his mom informing it and so he said of course our music was a paradox because my whole life was a paradox growing up mm. so it just made me think about how much our childhood informs our view of the world and how we approach the world and what we think of as possible in the world it has a huge impact my my grandfather was uh, i mean those are some of the best memories for me growing up I, you know i think the the sad part was and he he painted a beautiful picture and maybe there was nothing that tainted that image as he grew into a man right so we have heroes when we're young and they do inform us um but then as as you grow and you dig a little deeper you see oh he was a man too and this was these were the issues he carried right and things i don't want to carry or you know this was his relationship with my dad and now oh now i see it for what it is um and that's the that's that's the difficult part right is i i tended to blow up my the idols of my youth rather than kind of count them as a foundation you know for me becoming who i am i don't know if that makes sense it's it's more of a something else i have to reconcile <laughs> you know it's because because that that image of a hero wasn't actual for me you know it was what a seven-year-old saw but it's not what a 40 year old man sees yeah i mean we can go real deep here uh but it's <laughs> i think as uh as the elder in our friendship uh <laughs> I, I got about 10 years on you um my experience has been that it, there becomes this season of life where you become very aware of your parents' flaws mm. and you become very aware of their humanness. And, and it's easy to focus on those things um, and to be resentful for them. These flaws right. of yours created these flaws or these problems in me. Right. And now I'm mad about it. And I, and then you move on. I feel like past that, hopefully there comes a, a, a reconciliation of that, that they, they were human just like I am and they are human. And uh, those flaws, while they're real, they don't define them fully. Right. And, and you can move back into a place, I guess, of acceptance. Maybe it's the whole grief cycle, you know, right, right. anger, anger and bartering and all of, all of that bargaining and acceptance and I hope that, you know, yeah, we can move to a place. And I think most, most of us do move to a place of acceptance and, um, independent. I mean, there's things that a lot of people have been through that are horrible, that have no redeeming value to whatsoever. Um, and, and that's, that's another situation, but yeah, I think that's part of life is working yeah. through that with your heroes of your childhood. Yeah. What, what I had hoped to ask Stephen, and we just didn't get to it, um, was you know the seamless life uh kind of works when uh when life works right so you know i had mentioned you know we are our choices and but as we know life life is difficult for some people from day one and continues right so living a seamless life isn't 
is not the same for all of us. <laughs> I think there's a lot of us that would say, uh, I need to completely um, cut myself away from everything that I was and the family I come from. And, um, and starting from that spot, it's so difficult. I have great empathy for people that come from an abusive house. They're poor. Um, they have no emotional bandwidth or physical access to anything that creates the hope for a seamless life, right? A good, seamless, holistic, healthy life. They're just really trying to survive. Um, and those are the people that really need just intensive mentors like a Steven to, to rebu rebuild a whole life into something that's worthy of being seamless. I don't know if that makes sense. And um, just kind of what he's done, uh, you know, with work in that space, right? There's his list of accomplishments is deep and wide, but as you gain in accomplishments, you almost move further away from the people that need it most. I don't know if that makes sense. You know, then you start getting hired for conferences. You're speaking to leaders. You're trying to make their life better. And then the, all the people, you know, the everyday Joe don't really have access to you anymore, or they can read your book, but they they still don't know how to, to create this seamless life because things are, have been so hard. And uh, so I, I would have loved to kind of explore that more. Right. Um, like, what does he say to those people? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, to that like point of growing in influence and, and I mean, you see it, I mean, with so many people, um, but it's uh, I think it's opportunity cost to everything. Right. Right. If you, if you stay, if you stay smaller and stay more in touch with individuals, you're missing the opportunity to help thousands and thousands of people. And when you operate up here, you're missing the opportunity to connect more with individuals. You just don't have, we're finite beings. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know that one is better or worse than the other. Right. It's just the, the price that you pay for the choices that you make. So, yeah. Um, all that's to say, I am incredibly grateful for Mr. Garber. I hope that we can have him on again sometime. I would love if we can pull it off. If we're ever in DC to actually record a podcast while we're taking a walk with him. Oh, I like it. I'll fly that to would be, for that. That would be amazing, right? The audio might be noisy, but I think it'd be well worth it if, if we could Dude, ever do that. Let's do it. You set it up. I'll fly to DC. We'll take a walk. I'd like to take a walk around the city. And he I think he has so much to say about the history of of that place and culture. Yeah. Um, and you figure out the technology end of it and uh, <laughs> I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. That'd be neat. Well, thank you once again for hanging around for after the interview and listening to our own uh, musings and thoughts and ramblings about our guests. Uh, like you, we're listening to these things for the first time whenever we're doing the interview. And um, and we're not uh, nearly as educated or informed as our guests are. We have lots of questions. We don't get them all. Uh, you know, a lot of times I'll go back and listen to these and think, oh, I wish I would have asked this question or that question. And uh, that's kind of the things we talk about near and after the interview but um thank you again hope that you will follow our podcast we have some great guests uh coming very soon we hope that you will continue to live in and experience the power of being known